0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. Each year, tens of thousands of harp seal pups are brutally slaughtered in Canada, with most of the killing taking place in March and April. We all have seen the footage of the brutal shootings and clubbings, and anyone with a heart must wonder, how can this continue year after year? Well, Dr. Diana Marmerstein is here with us today, and she is going to explain what exactly is going on up north. Welcome, Doctor. Welcome, Doctor.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: I should add that uh, you are CEO, Executive Director, and Chairperson of the Board of HarpSeals.org. And I would just invite anyone to visit HarpSeals.org and look at the uh, incredible information you've got on the website. So thank you for, uh, for putting that up there.
1: Thank you. Yeah, we try, we try to be a resource for people um, who want to know what's going on so they can help to stop the slaughter.
0: Okay. Why don't you get us started by describing what occurs at a seal hunt and particularly those in, in, in Canada?
1: Each year, tens of thousands, as you said, of harp seal pups, and I do emphasize pups are killed mainly for their fur. Um, they are only about three weeks to three months of age when they're killed. So they are very much um, pups. They are independent in the sense that they their mothers have left to go and um, breed again, but um, they certainly are not mature animals. They, in fact, in the first phase of the killing, don't even know how to swim yet, mm. and so they really can't get away from the sealers at all. And in the second phase of the killing, which is around Newfoundland, they are able to swim a little bit. They've learned how to swim, but um, they're still still very vulnerable, and um, they suffer immensely. Um, being being killed in in brutal ways, um, as you mentioned, they're clubbed, um, which happens mostly in the first phase, and then um, in the second phase around Newfoundland, they're shot, and in some cases, they're clubbed on top of that if they're shot and just wounded, because after all, they're being shot from a boat rocking in the ocean. So often they're just wounded and then Mm. clubbed or even gaffed and dragged onto the boats while still alive, which, which is illegal, but it's been documented.
0: So pelts are obtained from the SEALs. What final products are produced from them?
1: They are primarily turned into jackets and coats and also some trinkets, so fur products. Um, it's not like a, a mink type fur. It's more just hair on skin. So you wouldn't necessarily recognize it as a fur coat. Hmm. But um, that that is what they are. They're turned into into fur coats and jackets and boots and things like that. Um, they're they're blubber, which is attached um, to the fur. So they're skinned you know they're they're skinned by these sealers who are I should mention they're off season fishermen um from mostly from Quebec and from Newfoundland, and so they they kill the seal they they skin the seal attached to the skin is blubber, and they they dispose of the carcass almost all of the carcass or flesh is just dumped yeah. um and, and they take the, the fur, and that's what they get the most money from. And then they also take the blubber, and they make that into seal oil capsules, which they sell as health food supplements, because there are some omega-3s in there. But um, the, main, the main product they're making money from, which is really not that much money, is the pelt. And, you know, typically they're making somewhere between $25 and $55 per pelt.
0: Where do these pelts end up? Uh, What countries are uh, importing them?
1: Russia was number one, and they did ban harp seal for imports, harp seal product imports. So now they are not importing harp seals. They still are importing Cape fur seals, uh, our product. China uh, is importing some, but I don't think they're importing a lot. And it's really, at this point, difficult to say, because back in, I think it was 2006, The Canadian government stopped producing those reports. So they used to put out information with all the other trade information as to deal pelt exports and what countries they were going to, how many were exported to each country, how much they were getting, that sort of thing. And then I believe it was in 2006 that they put that all into, they bundled it all with fur products because they didn't want us to know because we were using that information and going to these countries, not are directly, but uh, the whole movement, we would go to the countries and um, try to get them to ban imports. And the EU did ban imports. So um, it was very effective, but they stopped putting out that information to stop us from being as effective in curbing demand for seal products. So it's really hard to say precisely which countries are the major importers at this point.
0: So, as I mentioned, almost anyone who really knows what's going on is uh, viscerally turned off by this. What do Canadians, what does the average Canadian think about this whole enterprise and uh, uh, how does it get sustained uh, politically? I understand it's complicated.
1: It has changed with the Trudeau administration, Um, with the Harper administration. uh, There was a lot of propaganda Put out that um, the the people who were killing the seals were uh, desperate fishermen, poor fishermen, and didn't have much of a choice. And they, you know, made a um, you know, a whole large percentage of income doing this. And so, you know, the the government would tell Canadians, don't don't try to stop this because you know you're hurting the poor fishermen, um, which is not true. You know, they were making usually about five percent of their income, and um, they were coming off um, what we would call unemployment compensation, what they call employment insurance, early because they normally get that during the off season, just standard thing that they get as um, fishermen, and they would come off it early to make a few extra bucks killing seals. So um, you know it wasn't zero dollars or whatever they made killing seals. It was. Whatever they were making in unemployment versus whatever they 're making killing seals, and um, so so that that was really false propaganda um, now with trudeau there 's less emphasis on the fishermen, and actually they 're trying to confuse the Canadian public into believing that the inuit this is an Inuit hmm. um, enterprise, and you know the Inuit are what we used to call Eskimos of the far north. And um, they kill seals mostly to use the whole body. And they mostly kill ring seals, adult ring seals. And and they do, you know, eat the flesh. And they they use the blubber and they use the skins mostly within their communities. But, um, you know, the reality is they have sold some of the skins. And the government has played a role in that in um, paying them a fixed price for the skins. Regardless, so the government would buy them back, send them to um, the the uh, tannery, and then um, they would pay a, a fixed price regardless of whether the market was up or down, and it was pretty high price. I think like fifty five dollars. And then if if these pelts then sold at auction for more than that, that extra money would go back to the Inuit sealers as well. So so they were insulated from a lot of the markets. Fluctuations, And they were killing mostly, they have been, they continue to kill mostly um, ring seals. So it's completely separate. They're not, you know, part of the quota system. They're not regulated like the fishermen are of Newfoundland and Quebec. Yet the government of Canada, the Trudeau administration, is, you know, quote unquote, playing the Inuit card, trying to get people, Canadians, not to oppose the seal hunt by saying, Um, This is an Inuit issue. The poor Inuit have, you know, very few opportunities. They're way up there in the far north. And um, so if you're against the seal hunt, you're um, a racist and you're against the Inuit. Mm -hmm. And and again, it's false propaganda. That's what we're focusing on now and countering that new government propaganda.
0: So what can we do here in the U.S.?
1: We have had a boycott of Canadian seafood for years, and um, we continue that because The people who are killing the seals are, as I said, off-season fishermen. So they make most of their money um, in the crab fishery, or um, flounder fishery, or shrimp, or lobster. You know, those are some of the main um, fish and crustacean. And also, there's some mollusks, but mostly it's those fish and Crustacea that they're selling to the U.S. as their main market. So, um, and and even beyond just the particular few hundred, you know, whether it's two to five hundred or six hundred sealers who are off-season fishermen, there's also the whole industry that likes to blame the seals, their scapegoats. And so as they keep overfishing and destroying the fish nurseries with their bottom trawling and such, um, they don't want to take responsibility. They want to blame the seals. The seals mm. eat too much fish, they always say. And so we need to manage them. And, um, so the whole fishing industry is really responsible, at least the East Coast fishing industry. So Americans can help by boycotting Canadian seafood and at the same time, um, letting the government, letting, you know, the fishing industry know that they're doing this. You know, that way they realize that, if they see losses, if they see a reduction in sales, they know why people are not buying Canadian seafood. And we're also boycotting Canadian tourism, at least to the East Coast, you know, Newfoundland and Magdalene Island. Um, those are the main areas where the sealers are. So, and we also would request uh, donations if people can do that, because that helps us. We're doing a TV commercial. We're working on a TV commercial targeted at Canadians now. And the more money we can take in through donations, the more we can put into that awareness campaign. Um, We're all volunteers, so that's where the money goes is, you know, to awareness campaigns and and outreach and stuff like that.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Diana Marmerstein with HarpSeals.org. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much.
2: Welcome back to the show. Here we go again, another cruel entry in the Encyclopedia of Ways People Harm Innocent Animals for Sport and Profit. This time, the setting is the beautiful Chesapeake Bay where docile and innocent cow nose rays are being slaughtered for sport as they migrate to mate and give birth. And now there's newly released undercover video documenting these so-called contests, which have to be ended. And after you hear what's going on, I'm certain you're going to want to take action along with the groups Fish Feel, Shark, and other concerned individuals. I am now very pleased to welcome to the show, Mary Finelli. She is founder and president of Fish Feel, which is the only organization devoted exclusively to promoting the recognition of fish as sentient beings deserving of respect and protection. Welcome to the program, Mary. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Dr. Kirsten. I really appreciate it. Mary, tell us about these rays, the cow nose rays. Where are they found? What is their life cycle like? And are they aggressive or dangerous to people?
3: Yes, uh, the cow nose rays. They are native to the Atlantic uh, Ocean. Um, every year, they come up from Florida to to the Chesapeake Bay to mate and give their birth to their pups. People are really taken by seeing them. They they travel in, in large schools. They are they're not aggressive. They are very benign. They do have a stinger, but they only use that defensively. And There are people who work with the rays and tell tell how affectionate they are and how well they can bond with them. And they're really beloved animals.
2: So these affectionate, docile creatures have become the prey of bow hunters. Describe what's happening.
3: Yes. Well, as I said, every spring they come up from Florida to the Gulf of Mexico to mate and give birth to their pups. And because they have been wrongly vilified as consuming the oyster populations, which in fact have decreased due to overcollection for human consumption and pollution and disease, they've been falsely blamed for causing these oyster population crashes. So... um, Virginia started a campaign, Save the Bay, Eat a Ray, and tried to um, market the rays for, as food, which failed dismally because they, they spent a lot of money trying to market them in the U.S. and Europe and Asia, and no one was interested in consuming them. Um, for one thing, they're, they have a high ammonia content in their skin so basically their skin tastes like urine so it's largely inedible and so now these bow fishing contests have started or have continued they've been going on for about 20 years now but they're really picking up steam and what they do is these boat fishers go out there and they can ride right, their boats right up on the rays who are gliding along the surface of the water and they'll shoot them with their arrows and impale them and haul them out of the water and and they have been beating them mercilessly um, now because that's been people have, have had such an outcry against that instead of beating them in this most recent contest they are just throwing them into containers to suffocate uh, and uh, and then they weigh them to try and see who has the heaviest rays, and and they've gone to such extents as to try to um, zip tie the females shut because most of these are pregnant rays. Um, zip-tie them shut so they can't give birth just to have them have a higher weight or actually stuff the newborn babies back inside them. It's just so uh, obscene and so grotesque um, to try to see who can get the heaviest rays. And afterwards, we've documented them taking barrels of rays, dead rays and just dumping them back into the river or we were to another contest where they were just throwing them right into, uh, straight into a dumpster. So it's, in addition to being grotesquely inhumane, it's also ecologically reckless. These animals are, they mate later in life. They only have one pup per year for each pregnant female. So they're very highly vulnerable to predation. So in, again, in addition to being grossly inhumane, it's also environmentally reckless. This is horrible, Mary. Is the killing legal? Unfortunately it is. There are no laws protecting these animals and pretty much anything goes. In addition to the bow fishing contests they have, they have these, these tournaments. In addition to that, they have charter fishing companies that invite people to go out specifically to kill the rays. Um, a lot of rays are also caught as bycatch in by um, commercial fishing. So the rays are really just being set upon. They're a, a native to the bay. They are an integral part of the bay. They play, play a very important role in the bay ecosystem and in the Atlantic ecosystem. So they're very wonderful and important animals, and they most certainly do not deserve this, this persecution. Some of the videos I watched
2: show these rays, which are not killed quickly, but that they can suffer for a long time after they are impaled. How were the videos obtained?
3: Well, a uh, shark um, showing... Animals, respect and kindness. They came out and helped us, and we we documented it. Um, the initial last year, we did it with cameras, and then this year, Shark brought their drones, and we're able to get some really remarkable footage of what, just what they're doing to these animals.
2: Mary, a petition collected more than 137,000 signatures, and yet the contest continues. Even the
3: press in Great Britain has covered this story, but it still continues. That's right. Well, people, when they learned what was happening and they saw what was happening, um, they were understandably and rightfully outraged by it. So we have nearly 140,000 signatures on the petition against it. And because of the media coverage, um, it generated a, a large public outcry. And last year that caused the government to hold a scientific workshop to address the ray situation. And that produced a report that essentially exonerated the rays and explained how vulnerable they are to predation. And that was followed by a subsequent scientific report that, that came out in even stronger terms explaining that, um, that the science had initially claimed that the ray population was exploding. There's no way that could be happening. Um, and that the rays, it's such a small part of their diet. Oysters are, are just a small part of their diet. Um, so they are, are being scapegoated. And they, the scientists came right out and said that, that that they are being scapegoated for the the oyster situation. The... National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Chesapeake Bay Office says right on their website that they don't uh, approve of the rays being removed from the bay. So, you know, there's no scientific basis for it, and the, the science points out that these rays are being scapegoated and that they are an important part of the bay. But despite that, these bowfishers who claim to be conservationists continue to kill these rays. And uh, if they genuinely were conservationists, they would take the science to heart and, and realize that these rays need protection, not persecution. Even um, the Isaac Walton who who is who was founded to promote fishing, they came out with an article opposing, the, really condemning these bow fishing contests. So there are even fishermen who are opposed to it.
2: Mary, who has the ability to curtail the slaughter, and what can listeners do about it?
3: Well, we've been asking the Maryland Department of Natural Resources to bring about an end to the bow fishing of, of rays, and they have been very reluctant to do so. They claim they don't have the authority, um, and they also claim there isn't a good population assessment of the rays. But there are some 20 species of sharks that off the Atlantic coast that we don't have population assessments, but there are restrictions on fishing them, so it can be done without a population assess- assessment and we already know how vulnerable the, the um the cow-nose-ray population is to predation. The International Union for Conservation of Nature and Natural Resources lists the species as near-threatened. So we're Urging, we're asking the DNR if they don't have the authority, put pressure on whoever does have the authority to stop it. But we believe they do have the authority. We're also asking the governor of Maryland to call for an end to these contests. This is Maryland Wildlife. The public wants them protected. And the state surely has the ability to protect Maryland Wildlife. There's no justification for allowing this blood fest to continue. Yeah, Mary, what's your website? It's fishfeel.com. Dot O-R-G. And we have the link to the petition on there. If people will go and sign the petition, we'd really appreciate that. Mary Finoli, thank you very much. Thank you so very much.
2: Welcome back to the show. If you have companion animals and human kids at home, one of the trickiest or most delicate things you may need to deal with is helping your children understand and cope with the loss of one of their pets. Of course, every family is different and every child is different, but there are some useful guidelines we should be familiar with as the family goes through this process. I want to welcome to the show Dr. Sandra Grossman. Sandra is certified pet loss and bereavement counselor and vice president of the Association for Pet Loss and Bereavement and co-owner of Pet Loss Partners. Welcome to the program, Sandra. Thanks, Lori. Thanks for inviting me. Sandra, most of us adults had to experience the loss of a beloved companion animal. But how is it different when there are children involved and the family pet is about to die or does die?
4: It's so important to to include children as much as possible. Very often, the loss of a pet is really the first loss that we experience. And so being able to go through the loss in a good and healthy way is going to allow children as they grow up and have to face other losses in their life to be able to face those losses in a healthy coping way as well. Do you find most
2: children get through this successfully? Are they pretty resilient?
4: I think that... Parents or, or or the people who are their role models are really important in the way they handle it. For instance, if if a mom or dad lose a beloved pet and allow their children to see them cry and see them feel sad, and then and then see them begin to cope with it, that's really healthy. And children will know, hey, we've lost somebody important to us and it's okay to feel sad and it's important it's okay to grieve you know if for instance a, a ch- you know a family loses a pet and the child says oh i really miss you know fluffy and the next day the dad comes home with a new fluffy so to speak It's almost like saying it's not okay, you know, or or you just go get another one. It's that whole replacement society that we try to stay away from. Or if a child cries because they lost their dog or their cat and the mom or dad says, don't cry, don't cry, it's part of life. You know, we don't cry over those kind of things. Then a child, as they get older, may think, you know, it's not okay to cry. When you when you go through a loss.
2: So it's important for parents to talk to their children about pet loss and allow them the time and go through the grieving process.
4: Right, and to see the parents go through them. You know, right. it's okay to cry in front of a child.
2: And depending on the age of the child, I'm sure there must be different ways parents should approach these issues.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And also it's important to to know just like... There's no set way that everybody's going to go through grief. It is the same for children. So I'm going to give you some examples of of what to do or not to do at certain ages. But that being said, you know your child best, and and you know how they react best, so you may or may not need to adjust this. Um, For instance, one thing that we always tell parents not to do when, especially when the child is younger, is you don't want to say that the dog or cat or whatever the animal was, was put to sleep. Children at that that age are really literal. And so if they hear, again, you know, Fluffy was put to sleep and all of a sudden he doesn't come home, you know, he's taken out and he was put to sleep they're going to be afraid that, uh-oh, if I go to sleep, what's going to happen to me? Am I not going to come back? Am I not going to be with my family? Oh, that's
2: a great point.
4: Yeah, so it's really important. And and however, you've talked about death. If you want to say Fluffy was sick and, and he's in heaven now, or, or however, you know, children like real young, say two or three, they don't, really understand what death is. For, for children really young, drawing is a good way to let them express their feelings or what they think has happened. A lot of times kids will, you know, draw pictures of pets with, with angels on them, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, when, when they get to that preschool age, and, and depending on, again, on the relationship. A lot of times, too, they don't understand, they know what death is, they don't really understand the permanence of it. And so they may say, when is he coming back, and you may have to talk about that. If they were really close to him, you may see problems, like like maybe if a child's going through potty training, they may kind of regress a little bit. Or if there may be sleep problems involved, so it's important to look for that. And a lot of times, again, because they don't understand what death is, they may think that maybe Fluffy died because they forgot to give a treats one day. So it's important to let children know that it wasn't their fault and just reassure them that the family unit is intact and that yeah. nothing's going to happen to them. And, and then as they go... And to start getting into middle school, uh, they they start hearing a little bit more about death and, and they do know that it's irreversible. But again, you may see certain behaviors, so if Fluffy died and, and, you know, you may find them being a little bit more clingy and asking a lot of questions and really wanting to know. And again, it's going to be based on the individual child, but you kind of deal with, what you think they can handle. So, But you may see a lot of children, maybe, you know, 7 to 10, asking a lot of questions. What should
2: parents do or say to their human children in anticipation of a companion animal's death?
4: You know, and, and again, that's a, a really good point, too. You may want to talk to your veterinarian to see, because different veterinarians will handle... Things different way. I think it's important to let a child know, and and often you know, especially when they're a little older, when they're seven, eight, nine, they can see that that the dog or cat's getting older. They can they know you know you're going to the vet, and again, it, it's based on the individual child what you want. To tell them or how much you want to tell them. If they say, is, you know, Fluffy going to die, you can say, well, he's very sick and we're trying to do everything we can to help him. If you're going to have to have the, the pet euthanized and you let the child know, they may say, you know, I want to be there. And you may want to explain a little bit What's going to happen? Again, I really suggest talking to the vet about what they think and how they handle it. A lot of vets, veterinary practices today have grief rooms, so they don't do it in a sterile setting. They'll actually have a a kind of low-lighting room with couches and a rug, and sometimes they'll bring the pet into the room and on the rug or on the couch. And that's a more comforting setting. There are some also some good books out there that, and, and I really recommend um, getting a book. And, and especially, you know, if a child is seven or eight and they're younger, you can read to them. Or if they're seven, eight, ten, reading with them. You know, um, when they're adolescents, adolescence is a, a hard time anyway. They're trying to figure out who they are, what life's about, but they may be more, if they've developed a strong bond, especially, you hear a lot, only children, you know, will think of that pet as their brother or sister, and they may really want to be there. Yeah. And I think it's important to allow that as long as they understand in terms of that they get. Sandra, are memorials helpful? exactly and and that's such a helpful way to help, I think, no matter how old the child is, whether it's a really young child, and they just you just draw pictures with them, but to allow children to maybe write something or draw something and and decide are we going to bury the pet, is the pet going to be cremated what do we want to do? How do we want to do? Do we want to get balloons and write messages on a balloon and make it a family decision and and something you do together as a family? You could even create a scrapbook together. Sandra, any final comments? I think it's really important that people... Understand that children know a lot more than we give them credit for. There's a wonderful story that a vet wrote about, and he talked about being asked to come to a family's home to euthanize an old collie. And when he got to the home, there was a 4-year-old little boy, and the mom and dad had decided that they wanted the little boy to be present. And so the vet went about getting the, the dog ready and the parents were very teary and and the little boy just sat there watching And the procedure happened, and again, the parents were really crying, and the little boy just went over to the dog and was looking at him and petting him, and he gave him a hug, and the parents were sitting off to the side and talking, and they were saying, you know, well, he probably really doesn't understand what's happening here. And then the parents started to talk to the vet, and they said, well, why why is it that animals have such a short lifespan? And the little boy at that point turned, and he said, well, I know. And, and obviously the parents and the vet were pretty surprised because they didn't even think he was paying attention. And they said, why? Why do you think that's true? And so he said, well, when people come to Earth, they have so much to learn. They have to learn how to live a good life and be kind and to love people. But when animals come to Earth, they already know that so they don't have to stay as long.
2: What a sweet story. Dr. Sandra Grossman, I know you're also available for telephone consultation. How can my listeners reach you?
4: Sure, absolutely. They can either email me at sandy-la, like Los Angeles, at petlosspartners.com, or they could call the number there, which is eight one eight four two one one five one six. 421 1516 And I'd be glad to speak to them about children and pet loss or anything else related to pet loss. And to let you know that we also do workshops for different organizations on these topics as well.
2: Pet Bereavement Counselor Dr. Sandra Grossman, thank you for your expertise.
4: Absolutely.
2: back to animals today did you know that 48 years ago this month the first celebration of earth day took place that's right each year earth day an event that promotes environmental protection and awareness and action about the environment is celebrated and commemorated around the world now earth day was established in 1970 marking the beginning of the modern environmental movement in the united states This was at the height of the hippie movement, and some people, young and old, were waking up to the reality the actions of Americans with their big cars and the factories polluting the air and water posed a huge threat to the environment. Even with the 1962 publication of the eye-opening book by Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, the environmental movement was still weak as the decade drew to a close, and most Americans were actually not as concerned about the environmental issues as they are today. Two figures were key in the birth of Earth Day. Earth Day was first proposed in San Francisco by John McConnell in 1969 at the National UNESCO Conference. McConnell, a Christian, believed that humans had an obligation to take care of the Earth and to share its resources equally. He wanted Earth Day to be a celebration of life on Earth and a reminder to people to preserve and renew the ecological balances upon which all life depends. Almost at the same time, Senator Gaylord Nelson envisioned a day of teaching about environmental concerns, and he hoped that other politicians would come to understand that there was growing public support for environmental issues. Most sources now credit Nelson, who received the Presidential Medal of Freedom Award in 1995, as the founder of Earth Day, although the name Earth Day was coined by McConnell. An estimated 20 million people participated that first Earth Day on April 22, 1970, mainly in the form of protests and demonstrations and how it has grown from there. Earth Day led to the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency and the passage of the Clean Air, Clean Water, and Endangered Species Acts. Today, Earth Day is celebrated in nearly every country with over one billion participants. However, there are no more street riots or protests. It has become predominantly an Internet-based operation, the Earth Day Network. And it has expanded into Earth Week, with a budget in the millions of dollars. The Earth Day Network campaign, A Billion Acts of Green, bills itself as an international movement to protect the planet and secure a sustainable future. And if you go to EarthDay.org, you will see the various actions you can take to help achieve these goals, like reducing energy consumption, stopping the use of disposable plastics, buying local produce, and reducing your ecological footprint, as well as the suggestion to eat less meat. Now, this is especially appropriate because many of you are aware of the incredible negative impact on the environment that goes along with modern agriculture and especially modern factory farming of meat and poultry. And with the California water crisis upon us, more and more people are learning for the first time the vast amounts of water needed to produce meat compared to what is needed to grow plants that we could eat and should eat instead. Like, it takes over 400 gallons of water to produce one pound of edible beef. Actually, I would like to see the Earth Day treatment of diet go further than it does. They do suggest a vegetarian diet, but the vegan diet is not emphasized. I believe the single most important thing you can do as an individual act for the environment For mother earth and of course for the animals is adopt a vegan lifestyle it does much more good for the earth than switching to a hybrid vehicle or using low-flow toilets or weather stripping your house things like that are okay but you do so much more to conserve water to pollute the earth less and to decrease your carbon footprint by being vegan Also, I would love to see much more active opposition to animal cruelty on the Earth Day website. So, it's Earth Day's 48th birthday. I hope you will reflect a bit about what you can do to protect the Earth and all its inhabitants. I wonder what Earth Day will look like 48 years from today. You're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of the show. Well, I'm proud to say we are now in our 10th year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun pet topics with fascinating guests and experts. And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, you can listen two other ways by going to the Animals Today website. That's animalstodayradio.com, or as a podcast on iTunes. It's so easy to subscribe on iTunes, and when you do, each week, usually on Sunday, a fresh show will download right onto your device. I'm Dr. Lori Kirstar and thanks for listening.
0: In Pablo Puppy's Search for the Perfect Person, written and illustrated by Sheila Hamanaka and published by the Animal Welfare Institute, Pablo, the homeless puppy, finds himself in an animal shelter. He's nervous but quickly befriends Natasha, a large and older dog who's sad because she feels unwanted because of her age. And so begins the tale of these two very different dogs, each hoping to find their perfect family. Along the way to a very satisfying conclusion, there are lessons of diversity, multiculturalism, tolerance, and of course, responsible dog guardianship. Hamanaka has constructed a sweet story with valuable concepts offered for young readers. The design and illustrations make each page fun to explore. Hamanaka also authored and illustrated Kami Cat's Terrible Night, in which an older cat leaps out of an open window into the dark of night and soon becomes lost. Kami luckily avoids harm from the many dangerous situations she encounters and gets reunited with her guardian in the morning, thanks to the efforts of a rescuer and the shelter. Hamanaka has received many awards for her work, and her association with the Animal Welfare Institute, as her bio states, reflects her deep concern for all sentient beings and for our home, Earth. Cammie Cat's Terrible Night and Pablo Puppy's Search for the Perfect Person are both also published in Spanish, and all of them can be purchased on the Animal Welfare Institute's website. I Am a Cat, the debut effort from author and illustrator Galia Bernstein, is everything a children's book ought to be. It's a simple, cute story about a dear gray house cat named Simon who wishes to befriend a group of big cat skeptics. The lion, the cheetah, the tiger, and others come to see their similarities to Simon more than their obvious size differences and accept simon as part of their feline pack bernstein's drawings are simply wonderful and the facial expressions on the big cats really give life to the book the last illustration shows a pile of contented snoozing felines it's a happy scene one that easily could be sold as a standalone print i am really looking forward to more from gallia bernstein
2: Thanks for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.
0: Every day in the United States, tens of thousands of puppies and kittens are born. Unfortunately, there are not enough homes for these cats and dogs. One unfixed female cat and her offspring can be the source of more than 400,000 cats in seven years. One female dog and her unfixed offspring can produce about 67,000 puppies. Too many cats and dogs are unwanted, so they end up being neglected, abandoned, or turned into shelters. Millions of healthy pets are killed in shelters annually in the U.S., More than 50% of the animals that enter our country's shelters get euthanized. Fortunately, there is a solution to prevent this unnecessary killing of animals. Have your pet spayed or neutered. If you want a new dog or cat, rescue one from a shelter and save a life. This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org.